Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode 18 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday the 3rd of June. And Leon, we're talking to James Valentine this week. That's right. James Valentine is the Chief Technology Officer of Frond. And he's talking to us about the connection between business strategy and digital strategy. And uh, it's becoming increasingly important, so uh, a good listen. That's right, that's right, and and really quite critical, actually. And there, after that, we're going to have a terrific chat with Chris Caton, and he's going to be talking to us about the three wild cards in front of economists at the moment that's driving, that's spooking financial markets, and these wild cards are the prospect of a British exit from the EU or a Brexit, the prospect of the Chinese devaluing the one, and Donald Trump becoming president of the US. And of those three... Two are essentially about passion rather than uh, economic sense. But in the meantime, let's have a chat with James Valentine. James Valentine, you're Chief Technology Officer of a New Zealand and Australian technology company called Frond, which I understand means catapult or slingshot, and it's kind of says something about your growth. You've been in the business 23 years and uh, been pretty revolutionary, haven't you? How's it been? Yeah, it's been, it's been an interesting ride. I mean, I've, I've been, it's been a pleasure for me to be at Frond for 13 of those years now, uh, and I think it's been really interesting to see that that revolution, I guess, in the technology industry and and what we've helped, what we feel we've helped create in Australasia through the adoption of, of mobile and cloud and, and, and that kind of thing, and it's been great to see the company grow for about 250... 300 staff across, yeah, Sydney, Melbourne, Auckland and Wellington. So, yeah, it's been, it's been good fun. You're headquartered in Wellington. Yeah, although I think we're sort of seeing now that we're, we're probably seeing ourselves as an Australasian company. Our, our CEO is sort of, he lives in Auckland but seems to, to be based across all our offices. So it's kind of, your head office is kind of, I think, and it's kind of that technology change, right? It's becoming a bit of a, of a less common thing in, in a way. It's a bit like Xero, the uh, accounting, cloud accounting company, which is also, um, uh, is also uh, New Zealand based. Yeah, absolutely. Although, yeah, you, the, the team, the executive team there, and they, they hardly ever seem to be there. They're always flying around the world, aren't they? So now you're talking about uh, the biggest, single biggest de- barrier to an organization's ability to adopt a digital strategy is the impact of capital depreciation and multi-year licensing contracts from legacy IT people. What do you advise businesses to do? Because everybody's getting into the cloud. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think it's, that is one of the factors that we see uh, that that does slow slow people down is trying to adjust their, their, their commercial models and, and move from CapEx to OpEx. Uh, I think in a way it's often, it's often used as an objection. Uh, and I think sort of when you assess and, and look at what the benefits of cloud are that, that really uh, there is it's more than just the financial benefits that are, that are causing people people to adopt it so I think we um, what we see is the, the digital strategies the digital demands the, the transformation demands on organizations are, are meaning that the traditional way of doing things just don't work and the the, the long-term capital cycles of, of buying something and sweating the asset just don't work in an age when you've got to make change so quickly. So, so we're sort of encouraging organisations to sort of try and break free from those old moulds of, of consumption and, and turn into uh, a more digital, a more cloud-based, a more OPEX-based kind of model, which gives them agility. There would be some sectors that surely would do that more easily than others. Yeah, I think it's um, there's certainly been at certain industries, particularly those who have had 
uh, real transformation demands on them um, who have adapted much faster to, to this new world. I think what we are seeing, though, is, is government, which was has kind of been a slow adopter, is actually now starting to accelerate much more quickly. So it's um, certainly some industries have a greater propensity, certainly those of the mobile workforce or really strong uh, consumer-facing uh, brands that have to engage clients. But actually, it's becoming the new normal, really. And so it's a bit harder than it used to be to sort of categorise by industry. So what are the advantages of moving away from having your own servers and whatnot uh, and getting all your stuff up in the cloud? Well, there's a, there's a range of benefits. And, and I mean, I've, I've had the pleasure of, of being out there talking to, to customers about cloud transformation for eight years now. And so the original conversation was often about cost. And it's, oh, it's lower cost. And I think what we're seeing is that actually the biggest benefit that organizations achieve uh, is, is actually around agility. Uh, and cloud platforms being on demand, uh, the fact that they remove that undifferentiated heavy lifting from organization uh, so they can focus on what actually makes them different and great means that they, those are the benefits an organization gets. The actual ability to change more quickly, to adapt more quickly, to remove um, that long-term investment in IT maintenance and actually move it towards innovation, those are the real benefits we're seeing people look for now. There would also be uh, security issues around cloud, aren't there? Yeah, well, uh, and, and interestingly, the answer to that is no. Uh, and so the big objection we used to get around cloud was, oh, well, it's not as secure. What uh, our clients, well, what the industry is now accepting is that the large cloud providers, the Googles, the Amazons, the Microsofts, the Salesforces have all making much greater investments in security than any one individual organization can. Uh, the number of, of employees that those organizations have dedicated day in, day out to security and the, the, the robustness and resilience they put into their platforms means that security is actually no longer an objection we see. That one is, has certainly passed. You're an implementer, but do you on-sell Google Connection, Amazon Connection to your clients, or are you running your own cloud uh, cloud access? No, we um, we intentionally have not built our own infrastructure because we believe that the, the best providers of that of the cloud platforms are the large-scale public cloud providers. So we're we're proud to be uh, partners of of NetSuite, Google, Amazon Web Services, uh, and Salesforce.com, uh, and so we we see them as being the key cloud platforms that enable our customers to transform their business. And so we've, we've, we've unashamedly partnered with who we think are the best in the world. Uh, and that gives us, that frees us from capital investment in our own infrastructure uh, and certainly acknowledges that that the best cloud platforms are those with the greatest investment into them. And so that's why we would rather than build our own, which would sort of, I mean, when we say sub, be substandard, but we just feel that the that the, the cloud platforms from these, these large, large international partners are, are just the best you can get. So economy and efficiency would be two of the things that, you, you'll be selling to a client and the client would uh, see as an advantage. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the, the economies of cloud, I mean, this is the, this is the fundamental, uh, if you look, sort of strip back under and get into the underlying technology. I mean, cloud is both an economic model and a, and a technology model. And on the technology side, uh, the key benefit that these, these, these large SaaS and, and, and cloud platforms have, the, the Zeros and the, and the Googles and the Salesforces, is that multi-tenancy. The fact that all their customers are sharing the same infrastructure, so they get incredible economies of scale and therefore a whole lot of flow-down benefits to the organizations that use their services around cost efficiency, uh, scale and performance. So how far do you see all this going? I mean, we're looking down the throat of the Internet of Things, which I'm sure a lot of companies would find useful. 
Um, where do you see the future? How sort of granular is it going to get? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the crystal ball. It's always a bit hard. I think, I mean, what we see is is that cloud is the new normal uh, and that all organizations are adopting cloud platforms uh, at, at an incredible rate. I think it was Gartner or one of the analyst firms who, who, who posited that 85% of enterprise workloads will be running on public cloud infrastructure by 2020. I'm sorry if that's not entirely correct, but kind of shows that what we're seeing is that workloads, all workloads will be going to public cloud except for a very small percentage that don't. Uh, and the interesting point here is that what cloud has done, these cloud, large-scale cloud platforms, is they have democratized access to incredible technology sophistication. And therefore, from that, from these building blocks of cloud capability, these new areas, the Internet of Things, comes out, right? And so this, we're, we're just at the start of sensorization, connectedness, and your connected devices. And that's all because the cloud platforms allow organizations to innovate and to, to create these connected capabilities that previously would have taken so much time, money, and capital effort. And so that's kind of the shift is that as, as, thing, as cloud becomes the commodity, it unleashes the innovation of the next generation of, of tools. So things like big data, uh, sensorization, Internet of Things, uh, predictive analytics, those are all enabled by the fact that these cloud platforms uh, have such power behind them. Uh, one, one of the issues is uh, the retail sector has been slower than others to adopt a cloud. How do you see that? Well, I think we've actually well, we've got a fair number of, of retail clients who have picked up uh, products like like Google Apps, so Google's Mail and Productivity Solution. The reason they've done that is because cloud SaaS solutions allow them to shrink and grow their workforce. So the workforce is shrinking and growing, which is a natural part of retail. And with a cloud platform, given you're paying per user per month, uh, you've got real flexible, you've got an IT cost model that matches your actually operating model. And so yeah, we've, seen, we've seen retail be quite, have quite good uptake because they're always looking for efficiency and effectiveness. And also what we're now seeing is uh, like things like beacons, uh, better like so the iBeacon kind of technology, which is powered by cloud and mobile, is all the kind of new technologies that retailers are looking for to try and get that edge because it is an incredibly cutthroat market. And I think the other thing we're seeing is around the digital transformation side is that retailers, this om, what we call the omni-channel experience, is that retailers need to have a seamless experience across mobile, web, uh, in-store, uh, and, and e-commerce, all those things need to work seamlessly. And so they're really being pushed to adopt technology. So, yeah, I think retail is a, is a really interesting space at the moment. How much pressure is this going to put on uh, national broadband networks? So in New Zealand has got what I believe to be a very efficient mm. high-speed broadband. Uh, Australia is still developing it. You know, how much bigger is it going to have to get? Well, it's, I mean, certainly, I mean, I think certainly New Zealand has, has done a great job of, of, of getting fibre rolling out. And, you know, it sounds like Australia's had some more challenges with that. I think it's, it's certainly critical for business productivity uh, to have good internet connectivity. I don't know whether, I mean, that's just the new normal, right? Um, whether the actual demands on bandwidth, I mean, they, they constantly increase, but that's much more, a lot of that's coming just from consumer side, video streaming and that side of things. For actual business applications, the actual bandwidth needs are actually typically very light. It's kind of a, it's a necessity. I don't, we haven't seen it come out as a real constraint. Um, it actually isn't, isn't a barrier, but I think it's because the, the innovation on, on broadband capacity is keeping pace with the demands of business. So at the moment, it hasn't become an issue, but it is 
I mean, it's it's an absolute criticality, um, and I, yeah, I really hope that a lot of things fall into place. And I mean, things like ubiquitous broadband, uh, ubiquitous broadband, ubiquitous Wi-Fi are all going to be critical for sort of the seamless consumer experiences that that, that customers are wanting, right? James Valentine, thank you very much indeed for your time, and uh, we look forward to seeing where Frond goes from here. Pleasure. Well, that was interesting, Leon. I thought it was. I thought it was really, really important stuff. I mean, business strategy is actually the key thing for digital companies. Oh, indeed it is. Great to have all this technology around the place. We've got to market it, get it out there, and um, service it. That's right. So now, Chris Caton, and this is going to be really interesting. Chris Cate, the markets are spooked at the moment about the prospect of Brexit with the polls showing more Britons are warming to the idea. What's your view about this? My view about the polls or my view about Brexit? How Brexit will affect the markets. I suppose um, a poll um, in favour of leaving the European Union, I think of this as one of the three things that I don't want to find out about this year because it would, uh, well, the you know all the economists seem, seem to think that it's, it would do the, the UK economy more harm than good and you have to believe that for financial market would react to that. Um, the, uh, it's worthwhile pointing out that I suppose they could vote to leave and it would all uh, blow over reasonably quickly. The, just the leaving process takes about two years apparently, so it's not as if there are major um, adjustments almost overnight. But but I know that I mean I know that market um, would would sell off. Obviously, uh, sterling would fall, um, and I'd advocate that anybody thinking about uh, going to the UK on holiday do so in the second half of this year if they do. And vote to leave. Um, the you know so so yes, this will be this will be a clear episode that will add to market volatility. It's already affecting um, what other people are doing. Although the FOMC has not explicitly stated this in the United States, I think it's quite clear that they they're thinking about raising rates in either June or July. But the odds are tilted in favour of July uh, because that puts them on the other side of the Brexit vote. And and certainly the words coming out of the Feds are pointing to that direction. Um, that's correct. They seem um, hot to trot, provided, as they keep saying, provided that you know the data keep coming out um, endorsing their view that the economy still has a reasonable amount of momentum, and while inflation is not hitting their target, it's moving towards their target. They see these things a bit more clearly than many other people do, um, and you know the, the Fed. The I guess the U.S. is is having the same issue that many other countries had earlier in the piece when they tried to raise rates. It's it's one thing to, to take rates to a zero bound or close to it. It's quite another thing to get them back to something that you might think of as normal after that event. A lot, a lot of other countries tried and, uh, and put rates back down. The US hasn't done that yet, but it certainly is not envisaging a rapid rise in rates. And what, what are the other two areas you don't want to see happening this year? Oh, <laughs> good question. Um, number one, a um, I think this is very unlikely, but uh, major devaluation of its currency by by China. A lot of people feared this around August last year when when they completely misinterpreted a, a minor. Uh, depreciation of the one against the US dollar, but not against other currencies. Um, so that's one thing. And the other thing, of course, is um, is the possible election of um, of Donald Trump in the United States. Um, yeah. I think there, um, nobody wants nobody wants to find out what happens if that happens. Well, uh, it's interesting because last week there was a financial review had a session of all these CEOs, and uh, they were saying that the prospect of Trump and Brexit were the two big wild cards for them. Yeah. Um, and yeah. they were quite uh, worried about that. 
Uh, yes, well, obviously, the chance of it happening is um, is bigger than it was, say, eight or ten months ago. Uh, so if that keeps going, you know, then, yeah, there has to be a chance. Now, it's important to point out that um, he may, uh, you know, modify some of his positions between now and November. But in any case, when he gets in, he doesn't have, uh, you know, but he's, he's not a dictator. Uh, everything uh, has to be... Um, has to be endorsed by Congress, and they will keep him in check. But it's just, um, I suppose my view is the US is running the risk of setting itself up to have ridicule pointed at it. Well, uh, I mean, how would it affect financial markets if Trump were I, to be elected I, president? I, I, I think I think it would be a massive negative in, initially, simply because of the uncertainty factor. Of course, uh, the way these things go, you know, the elections on the eighth of November. But the way these things go, it would be. It, it depends whether it's clear beforehand that he's going. To win or going to lose, um, so you know any financial market reaction is is in, in a sense priced in by the day of the election. But um, you have to think there were just because it would increase uncertainty, you'd have to think it would be a negative for markets. Right. I mean, what are the big concerns of Trump were to be elected? I mean, I mean, realistically, I mean, I, we've seen it many times. I mean, there's a yes minister effect where you have candidates coming out with all this all this sort of rhetoric before the yeah. election, but uh, yeah. once they once they're elected, you have the uh, Sir Humphrey. Applebee's moving in and correct. Um, correct. Correct. Uh, steering them towards moderation. That, that's correct, but um, this man is, um, shall we say, he's not hes not from the usual mould, is he? Um, the, uh, he doesn't seem to care what anybody else thinks. He doesn't seem to care about any inconsistencies in his positions over time. Um, I think um, you're quite right, maybe... Um, nothing, you know, maybe his wilder ideas nothing will not come to fruition, but it is simply the uncertainty that's created by it um, that I think would spook markets. And, that, and so markets are very concerned, would be very concerned about that happening? I, I believe that to be the case, but, uh, but, you know, if you took a poll now, you know, important business people in the United States, I think you'd find a surprisingly large number of them would actually think it was a good thing if um, Donald Trump were elected. That's in part because many people have real Real problems, which we say the other candidate, Mrs. Clinton. But um, but you know, nevertheless, I think uh, yeah, markets it, it would um, you know, it's it, I come back to it again. It's the uncertainty that would um, well, in view of all of that, what you seem to be saying is, uh, I mean, this year we've got uh, three very uncertain scenarios. One is uh, well, we'll know next month with Brexit, and uh, we'll know in November with uh, Donald Trump, and throughout the year with the Chinese currency. Yes, yes, yes. But I think each of them, reasonably low probability. Um, but, but yeah, the our three, as I said, these are the three things I would just as soon never find out about. So that means we can expect a fair bit of um, uncertainty and volatility in the markets looking ahead. Correct, correct. This differs a bit from what many people think, but, but share markets in particular have been quite lacking in volatility lately. So maybe we're in for, a, for another burst. Any of these three or concerns about these three could bring it about. Chris, going back to the Brexit thing, I see the Scots are suggesting that if Britain does go out, that they would seek secession and would move in. So there's a fair amount of flow on, isn't there, uh, if they do Oh, absolute, absolutely. And, and, and in fact, I think it's flow on that, uh, that is the biggest issue here. And it's not just the Scots. It's, you know, who knows who else? It could be Portugal. It could be Spain. It could even be France. Other people saying, well, you know, if the UK is prepared to go it alone, we there are some of these regulations we don't particularly care for either. Maybe we should be thinking along those lines. Yeah, it's the contagion effect 
that I think is is where the most important economic and market effects would eventually take place. And then, of course, we've got the uh, prospect of the federal elections in Germany next year as well, and the prospect of Angela Merkel being thrown out. Yeah, well, I think uh, <laughs> she's the last survivor, is she not? I think she'll be by then. She'll be the only. Well, even now, I think she's the only um, European or even important leader, with the possible exception of Vladimir Putin, um, uh, who was leading from behind the scenes, who, who you know was there at the time of the GFC. Everybody else is gone, and uh, she's the last great survivor. But yeah, in part because of her um, thinking about uh, immigration, among other things, uh, yeah, she's looking in danger next year. And that would affect markets too if she were thrown out? Yeah, yes, but I think that would be relatively minor in the scheme of things, but maybe that only shows my ignorance of German politics. I was just thinking that uh, uh, the market knows what to expect with her, but they wouldn't know what to expect with someone else. That, that, that's absolutely correct, but you could say that about, about almost any leader and... Um, uh, when somebody new comes in, and, and most of the time, you know, you, you're at least as likely to get a, you know, a, new, a new broom sweeps clean um, view of the change. Well, Chris Caton, it looks like we've got a volatile few months ahead of us, and thank you very much for your time. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. So what do you think, Leon? Well, I think it's clearly spooking markets everywhere. You look at the volatility around uh, the European markets and even America. Yes. So now... Um, the news, Leon. Gary, for a start, uh, Janet Yellen over last weekend gave some comments that have had set bond traders saying a mid-year rate rise from the Fed is on its way. In an afternoon appearance at Harvard University, Dr. Yellen said the Fed would probably gradually and cautiously increase, re- increase interest rates. Probably in the coming months, such a move would be appropriate. That's an exact quote from her. Now, bets on a rate increase in June have risen to 30%. That's up from 12% in April. And for the me- meeting after that in July, chances are up above 50%. So the market is already factoring in a rate rise. Yeah, exactly right. And it's pretty clear the US economy is on the way back. Yes, yes. Now, Britain's top economists have overwhelmingly come out against Britain's voting to leave the European Union in June. A poll commissioned by the Observer found that 88% of economists said a British exit from the EU or a Brexit would damage Britain's growth prospects over the next five years. 82% of economists said Britain leaving the EU would hurt household incomes. Another 61% predicted it would see unemployment rise. 72% forecast it would have a negative impact on Britain's growth for 10 to 20 years. Now, the referendum is expected to be close. It comes at a time when polls are showing British voters are moving towards voting to leave the EU, with the out campaign three points ahead of in in each of two surveys commissioned by um, the Guardian newspaper. And the OECD has warned that a Brexit could create a negative shock for the British, European and global economies, and it would send living standards in the UK down 5%. It would create weaker demand in the European economies, and that would affect the rest of the world. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, Britain would be, you know, just a dark cloud over it. loss of trade to Europe and all the rest. Well, given that half of Britain's trade is with the European Union, I think it's a real issue. It gets shut out of uh, treaties and things like that as well. Interesting report from the Climate Institute, Gary. It said that Australian coastal properties could lose at least $88 billion in value from climate change. And there, it put out a report saying, there goes the neighbourhood. It warns that banks and insurers need to take measures to address the risks of coastal erosion. It says insurers will have to review assumptions about climate change, ensure they incorporate climate change into their risk and capital modelling. They'll have to make sure customers know exactly how premiums reflect the risks from natural disaster and weather extremes. And banks, they say, should examine climate risks in their own mortgage books and ensure it's integrated in their risk assessment models. And the report warns that escalating weather events could 
could see insurers lose money through multiple payouts. Now think about all the, those big storm events happening. Well, the thing in Brisbane when, when the uh, Brisbane River broke its banks. That's right, and all those big floods, yes. Yeah. Now as a result, insurers would either have to raise premiums or decline to insure. And that's the problem, Gary, because unaffordable insurance would see properties being devalued and that would have negative consequences for banks, indirect mortgage investors like superannuation funds and all up. The report says governments and the finance sector needs to do more to address the risk. I wonder if Lindsay Fox has thought about coastal erosion at his place down the bay. Portsea, indeed. Indeed. Now, the iron ore price is tanking, Gary, and it's heading down. It's fallen to a three-month low, sinking to below 50 bucks amid a continued global supply glide. Iron ore lost 1.4% to $49.60. That's its lowest point since February 29 when it traded at $48.90. The commodity has slumped 24% over the past month because exchanges in China are cracking down on speculative trading. Investors are less optimistic about China's plans to increase infrastructure spending. And uh, Goldman Sachs is warning that the price could go down as low as 35 bucks by the end of a year. And that's going to mean there'll only be two big miners left. Well, it's going to affect all those low, high-cost miners like Atlas. And even Fortescue. That's right, that's right. But also... It means it's going to leave a big hole in the Australian government finances because a budget is predicated on an iron ore price of $55 and it's gone down to $49.80, not $49.60 right now. And it's still going south. That's right. So that would blow a hole in the government's budget. Now, there are signs, Gary, that the election campaign is weighing on consumer confidence. The ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index has down 2.2% in the week ending 29th of May. And that fall partly reverses a 3.6% increase over the previous four weeks. And confidence about future finances fell 4.7%. Same time, feelings about the state of the economy fell 6.6%. Views about economic conditions in the next five years fell 2.4%. So I think that's a quite an issue. At the same time, um, a surge of exports in the fourth quarter has narrowed the current account deficit to $20.8 billion. That's down from $22.6 billion in the fourth quarter. According to the ABS, net exports rose 60% to $4.7 billion. The trade figures show that while exports rose 4% in terms of volume, tumbling prices saw exports actually slipping 6.3%. But alarmingly, Gary, the debt figure continues to rise. Australia's net international debt position, which takes in net debt and equity, increased $51.4 billion to $1.01 trillion and the nation's foreign debt was up 9.2 billion to a record uh, 1.03 trillion and this coincides with ABS data for building approvals for April uh, showing a rise of 3% beating forecast of 3% fall but I think this is quite an issue Gary. Oh, it's a huge issue yeah it, you look at it and you think oh, there's a bubble there. Well I well I can tell you now the ratings agencies are going to be looking at those debt figures very very closely. Well numbers like that and you bear in mind we're 25 million people we're starting to look a bit like Greece and we ain't going to get an IMF bailout. The debt is really quite bad. I mean, I've seen uh, some ep- some estimates from Morgan Stanley saying Australia's debt position is much worse than China because Australia's debt is tied up in property, which doesn't do anything. And could well become a negative, paying a mortgage and not getting any return. That's right. Now, Australia's economy grew at a faster one, 1.1% uh, in the first quarter, with GDP rising 3.1% over the past year. That means Australia is now growing faster than America, Gary. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? 
But, uh, I mean, that growth was driven largely by surging export volumes, which contributed one percentage points out of the 1.1% quarterly growth. What was interesting, too, in the figures, Gary, was it showed that income, the actual hip pocket staff, net disposable income, was actually, well, it, it, was, uh, one, it was flat in the March quarter, and it went backwards. It went one, it declined 1.1%. So the economy's going up, but wages, actual wages, going down. Well, that actually means that our living standards are falling despite a soaring GDP. And that really raises a question for me, Gary, is how relevant is GDP? <laughs> That's true. But then you look at what the uh, CFMEU is, uh, 18% across three years, and hang on, that's a pay rise. Well, you, you've Provided got to- they're still building buildings. Indeed, because Australia's housing market has kicked up again, uh, led by Sydney house prices, which have again headed upwards. The CoreLogic Hedonic Home Value Index shows Australian house price growth is back in double-digit territory. National growth is back to 10% in the year the end of May. That's a big turnaround from the 7.4% level it was in December last year. And the growth was led by Sydney, which grew at 3.1%. Canberra and Hobart grew at 2.5%, 2.2% respectively. Melbourne grew at 1.6%. The RBA is talking about another cut. Well, they're not, but Indeed, indeed, are. which is, well, it may, but AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver is forecasting that interest rates is going to fall to one2 5% because of low wages growth in a high Australian dollar. And he says minutes from the RBA's board meeting showed that the central bank is waiting for more information before it cuts. But he said, and I'm quoting him here, however, the, given the downside risk to inflation, particularly with wages growth falling to a record low, 2.1%, constrained growth and still high Australian dollar, more rate cuts are likely. We are allowing for two more rate cuts this year, taking the cash rate to 1.25% by the end of year end. So that's going to make it pretty tough on the retirees and, you know, you look at the yield off the share market, it's not all that great these days either. That's right, that's right. Now, at the same time, corporate profits are crashing. Uh, Australian Bureau of Statistics data shows that gross operating profits in the March quarter slipped 4 Seasonally adjusted, that makes a year-on-year decline of an 8.4% fall in corporate profits. That represents the largest year-on-year fall in profits of Australian companies since 2012. It's also the lowest quarterly figure since the first quarter of 2010. And the size of the full quarter was unexpected because the economists actually expected a 0.4% rise. And the news sent the dollar down to below 72 cents. And the fall in profits was across several sectors. Mining company profits fell by a massive 9 0.6%. Manufacturing profits were also down by a huge 14.5%. But the biggest damage was in financial insurance services, and they were down a whopping 69.4%. Yeah, but on the plus side, there was an unexpected 0.4% increase in inventories, which was expected to stay flat. But anyway, that's... Anyway, corporate news, Gary, and this is really interesting. Australia's iconic pie maker... Patty's is in advanced talks with private equity firm Pat, uh, Pacific Equity Partners. Now, Patty's makes 4 and 20 pies. And uh, the company um, also makes Nana's frozen desserts. Is looking at a total offer worth $300 million. And Pacific Equity is offering to buy 100% of the company at $1.65 a share. And the offer includes any dividends paid after the proposal date with a possible unquoted equity alternative. And in a statement to the market, Patty's chairman, Mark Smith, said the board had determined that engaging in talks with Pacific Activities was in shareholders' best interest. I wonder if somebody's working on a plan to sell pies in China. I think it's a, it's an amazing story. Now, Aldi, Gary, according 
uh, it promises to destroy Australia's supermarket duopoly with the latest figures showing it's now more profitable than Coles or Woolworths. The UBS analysis reveals that Aldi's earnings before interest and tax at sales around 6% compared to 4.6% at Coles and 5.4% at Woolworths this year. And UBS forecasts its sales growing 15% a year for the next three years, reaching at least $10.6 billion, as much as $14.8 billion by 2019. And according to UBS, Aldi's share of the national grocery market will rise from 7% to at least 10% by 2019-20, and that means a German retailer will steal at least $1 billion in combined sales each from Woolworths, Metcash and Coles. It, it's an interesting story, and of course the uh, Aldi's expansion plans goes into, what, 70 new stores somewhere in the west and a couple of hundred on the east. Uh, and on top of that, what you're getting is, because Aldi doesn't have a full range the way Woolies and Coles do, you're getting independent shoppers, butchers and greengrocers and whatnot, growing up around the Aldi stores. That's right, yeah. And return of the sort of high street uh, shopping. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a really interesting trend, I think. Very much. And it's really shaking up the uh, duopoly. And that's a good thing. Very good thing. And uh, anyway, and that's it for this week, Gary. Excellent, Leon. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZZ or on Facebook. We look forward to talking to you next week.